Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. Several weeks ago we talked in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and then Genesis chapter 3 about Paradise Lost. Of course the title is based on a 17th century poem by uh, John Milton, one of the great works of English literature, but it's also very scriptural. We're doing this as a foundation for something, where God wants to, I believe, wants us to spend some time looking at how the kingdom of God operates. Since we're going to spend eternity in the kingdom of God, actually, you're in the kingdom of God now, it's just that we most of the time don't realize that. The kingdom of God operates by certain principles and certain rules that God has ordained and created, and, and, and they work. And we're going to discover that the kingdom of this world operates on principles and systems but in most cases, they're the opposite of the kingdom of God's principles. And so our basic instinct, without having our mind renewed to the Bible, most of the time our basic instinct of what to do is going to be just the opposite of what God's kingdom calls for us to do. And God's kingdom works. In God's kingdom, there's blessing, there's provision, there's peace, there's help, there's all that we need. And in the perversion of that kingdom, which is what this earth is right now, then that's where all the other stuff, the sickness and disease and lack and problems are, have come through that. But it's not God's design. We talked last time and I shared with you, if you really want to know God's will, God's plan, how God has designed things, there's three places to look in the Bible. In the beginning, when he created it, before man was involved at all, before Satan came on the scene to, to, to pervert it, there's when God comes back on the earth, which is, of course, Jesus walking in the flesh. It's how he conducted himself, what he did. And then the third place is when God recreates it all over again in the end. And so, so, so there's a way to see. There's windows into God's will. Those are, one of the, those are those three windows that I see, at least, in the Bible. And so we saw that in this original creation, God's plan, he created man for his purposes, for his pleasure. God's nature is love. Not human love. Human love is selfish. Human love loves for what we can get back. So if somebody doesn't return the love, them. Forget them, I'm going to go love somebody else. But God, God's type of love loves because it, it's, the na it's His nature. And so that kind of love cannot just hold it to itself. It has to have someone, something on which to pour that blessing, that, that, that love, that bounty out on. And God created this man in order to do that with, to pour out his love, his blessing, his favor, his, his everything that he had. He held nothing back from him. But this man was his creation. He walked in perfect communion with God. He walked in perfect communion with no separation, no veil, no interference with the source of life himself, with the source of joy himself, with the source of peace himself. We've seen little glimpses of what that's like because we've looked at Moses on the mountain. He didn't want to come down. He was spent 40 days in the presence of God, no food, no water, not, you know, checking off his calendar, see how much longer does this have to go. God had to make him go down into the valley to take care of a problem down there with the people who were building a, a, an idol to worship instead of God. So my point is this, in the presence of God, Moses wasn't lacking anything. He was fully satisfied beyond anything he could imagine. And you look at others that have been taken up into the throne room of God and seen things. And I've read stories of people that have died and gone to heaven and then had to come back. They didn't want to come back. Your most precious relative, you know, that was so dear to you, if they're in heaven and they had a chance to come back and be with you as much as they love you, they would not even enter their mind to come back and be with you. Because they see what the presence of God is like. And you and I look through it at the veil of flesh, at the veil of our unrenewed mind. And that's what we've been talking about. So that's what this original creation was like. And we saw that at the end of chapter 2 that, that they were both naked and were not ashamed. What that tells me is they weren't aware of themselves. They were so caught up in who God is. They were so caught up in who, what God was like in His glory, His majesty, His loveliness, His love, His holiness. They were so caught up in that they had no awareness of themselves. You've got to have no awareness of yourself to be naked and not be aware of it. Right? You all here this morning? Yeah. All right, okay, all right, okay. So, and then, of course, that's what Satan comes in to pervert. He can't destroy anything, but he can pervert it. 
So he comes in and he says he was more cunning than any other beast. And he comes in to do with this creation what he had already done in heaven, which is to exalt himself. He began, we looked at this before, he was the most beautiful creation God had made, most likely. He certainly was beautiful. We read some of the description of him in Ezekiel 37, or 20, Ezekiel 37. And we saw that he was, he, was, he was beautiful and gorgeous, that he was the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. That means he hovered around the throne of God, giving glory to God and praise to God. And there's a good likelihood that because it, says his, it talks about his instruments, that he was somehow involved in maybe in charge of worship. We don't know that all of that, but we know that he was an amazing, creation, but he got lifted up because he began to look at himself and take his eyes off of God and began to become aware of his own beauty. And as he began to look at his own beauty he, and began to and stop looking at God as the source, he fell into the deception of thinking his own beauty came from him. That's so important to understand because then what he does, of course, then he's evicted from heaven along with a third of the angels. So he obviously had some influence. He was able to deceive one-third of the angels who could see God. Don't underestimate his ability to deceive. And, he, and they, were, they were exiled to the center of this earth. And then God creates this man and then this woman. And at the end of his creation, they were not even aware of themselves. All they knew was God and his peace and his joy. They just were such in love with him and such awe of him. And they recognized that he was their creator, their source. And they weren't complaining. They weren't lacking anything. They had everything they needed in abundance. God created a place called the place of delight, Eden, to place them in. It says it's all yours to enjoy, not to own, to enjoy. But there's one tree you can't eat of. That's all, just one. Religion says there's all these things you can't do and you can do this one thing. God says, I want you to enjoy it. Enjoy it. Some translations say he commanded them to enjoy it. But one tree they couldn't eat of. One of the purposes of that was to remind them that they didn't own anything. It was a reminder to them that everything they had, they were stewards of, not owners of. They possessed it, but they didn't own it. And we'll get to this down the road, but I believe that for us, the tithe is part of that also. Because a tithe reminds you that everything you have is not yours. That God, see, everything, we're going to find out everything we have, nothing you have you own. And even the tithe God gives to you, and the Bible teaches us it's still His. But he gives it to you so you can willingly, as an act of worship, give it back to him. And that's a reminder to you that everything I have is his. We'll talk more about that down the road. I can tell how popular that was. Okay. (laughs) But we're laying foundation. All right. So that's where we've been. We've looked at that. We've seen that that, so the root of what Satan came in to do was to, whatever means he could use, was to get them to be conscious of themselves because the moment they took their eyes off of God and being absorbed in who he is and became aware of themselves, it created a separation. Because now what happened is they began to protect themselves, uh, provide for themselves. So what's the first thing they did when God shows up? They go and hide. That's protecting themselves. They clothed themselves. They figured out how to clothe themselves. So they took plants and they covered them naked with what they were ashamed with, with their own effort. Uh, uh, Listen carefully. They covered what they were ashamed of with their own effort, the works of their own hands. They became afraid. They'd never been afraid before. And Satan's deception was, look, God's trying to keep something from you. Because in that place he calls paradise... there's rights you have that that he's hiding from you. And so they listened to that deception that they were entitled to something God was keeping from them and look at the result. They ended up outside of paradise. They ended up in fear, shame, guilt, blaming each other, 
All that stuff started when they became conscious of themselves. So the promise that he made to them, that look, if you, if you listen to me and you allow me, I will, I, will, I, will, I will show you what your rights are. I will help you to pr- pr- promote yourself, protect yourself, and provide for yourself. You have rights. You have your own individuality, you have your own personality, and I will help you promote that. That was the lie because God's keeping something from you. Yeah, what God kept from them was evil. And he uses that same deception today. That same deception today. That God's holding something back. That God's not taking care of me. God won't do this. God won't do that. And more subtly is, but therefore I've, I'm going to take care of myself. I, and in essence, I'm establishing my own kingdom. Now, I'm talking about Christians. Because when we come to Christ, we're going to see today... We come to Christ. Now we've been joined back to Him. We're back in His kingdom. We're a child of God. We belong to Him. We've been joined to Him. But that's where God's put us. But we're living as if we're outside of it. So Genesis chapter 3. We'll pick up here now. We're going to look at what happens after they fall to his, into his, Satan's deception and they begin to assert their own rights and their own individuality and their own personality. Verse 17. Then Adam said, this is talking to, excuse me, yeah, then, then, he, then to, to Adam he said, so it's, this is God talking to Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife, now don't run away with that, that's not a general principle, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree which I commanded you saying you shall not eat, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So everything that God had designed, this, this world, earth that God had designed, this garden that God had given him responsibility over, it all cooperated with him. It worked together with him. It didn't fight him. There was no decay. There were no weeds. It was, he just kind of, kind of oversee it and manage it. And God saying, now what's happened is you have released in this earth a curse. And the curse came from standing for their own rights and individuality. It's standing up for themselves. Now we're talking in terms of God. You and God, okay? In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of the face of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living things. Also for Adam and Eve, the Lord made tunics of skin. So they, first of all, when they found themselves, discovered they were naked, they went and covered their own shame, their own nakedness, but their own work. And in order to do that, they cut down plants. God is now providing for their nakedness. God is now providing for their nakedness and to cover their shame. To do that, he has to sacrifice an animal and sheds its blood. See, God's method of covering things is different than human's method of covering. Look at verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. Now lest he put out his hand, and also take of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove the man out, and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, with a flaming sword which turned every way, to guard the way to the tree of life. What is that all about? If you, don't, if you read that... Without some understanding, you'll think God got mad and evicted him and kicked him out. This was God's protection. God says now that he knows evil, now that he's sinned, here's what I'm concerned is going to happen. Because he might eat of the tree of life and live forever. Here's the significance of that. Because in the kingdom of God... The wages of sin is what? The penalty, the price for sin is death. 
God's plan at this point was to pay for their sin, someone had to die on their behalf. Right? But if they ate of that tree of life so that they were now immortal and could not die, then nobody would be able to die in their place because they would be eternally separated from God. You follow me? So God, out of mercy, already planning to redeem them, says, I cannot let them eat of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, I have to evict them out of here, put angels in charge of the gate so they can't get back in here until we're not going to take the time. But you go to the end of the book and the gateway's open now. That they can't come back in here because if they eat of the tree of, eat of life and live forever in the state of sin, then I can't ever redeem them because there's no way I could take their place and die for them because they would not be capable of dying. See, that's why the angels that fell with Lucifer and Lucifer himself can't be redeemed because they're immortal beings. They can't die and pay for their sin. God, out of His grace, left man in a state where he was capable of dying so that that price could be paid in his behalf. All right? Okay. Now, that's important. Because then what we've looked at is go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And we looked at this last time, but we'll go there again because I want you to... So what we've looked at also is that's where, that's where we were left. And you and I were, all, were born into this state. So we had over here paradise. Over here we had paradise, which was the presence of God, the blessing of God, the favor of God. God didn't hold anything back from them. Whatever he had, he freely poured out on them. Just one tree they couldn't eat of. And that was the one that was going to get them in trouble. Then what happens is they're now evicted from there in a fallen state. And the fallen state is they're separated from all that we've talked about. They've lost paradise. Because, again, paradise is not sitting on a beach with your lemonade, you know, and somebody waiting on you all the time. Paradise, true paradise, the ultimate paradise, is literally being in full communion with God. And so man's been separated, evicted from there, and this is where you and I were born into. Not just born into it, we participated in it. So it's not just original sin that we were born into. All that means is you are going to sin whether you, you know you had no choice in the matter because of the nature that you and I had. See, sinners sin because it's their nature to sin. Just like apple trees produce apples because it's the nature of the apple tree to produce apples. And we were born in that state with that nature in us. God announced, we looked last time in Genesis 3.15, that God had a plan. He was going to send us someone born of the seed of that woman who was going to redeem mankind from this. And of course, that's Jesus. And last time we looked and we saw that what Jesus did when he came is he took upon himself all that separated us from God. He took upon himself our sin. We saw in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So the first thing he had to do is he had to take our sin on himself. And then on that cross, that sin was judged. Your sin, my sin, our, which is in essence was our rebellion against God. All the other sins we commit come out of that rebellion against God. Say, well, I wasn't rebelling against God. I, we talked about this last time. I wasn't angry at God. In, God's, in your eyes, you may not have had anger in you, but from God's perspective, because we're His creation. And this is the whole point. We're His creation. We're not, you know, and this is one of the, 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 one of the, the weaknesses of our church, the church today, and I don't, don't just want faith Christian Center, especially in the United States is because we've heard so much about God's being friends with God and God being our Father and loving God, and that's all true. But we've forgotten. We think, therefore, we're buddy-buddy with Him. And yes, we are His sons and His daughters. But we're there. We're still His creation. 
that doesn't put us on a par with him where we're also creators. We have all of that because through Christ, we've come back into that relationship that he had with that first man in the garden. But it's all by grace. It's all by grace. It's there for us. It's there to enjoy. But it's all by grace. We are his creation. And so Jesus came, and that's the enmity we had. We were trying to assert ourselves against our God and our Creator. And every time we still try to do that, we are fighting against Him. And, but, that, but once we're in Christ, we're still His children. So we'll get, we'll get to that. All right. Now, so Jesus came, He took our sin, paid for our sin, and gave us His righteousness. He didn't make us righteous. He took His own righteousness and gave it to us. Why? So that we could now be qualified to become sons and daughters of the living God because He is a righteous God. He is a holy God. And we could not be brought back into communion and fellowship and union with a holy, righteous God if we were left unholy and unrighteous. That's why uh, Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as He ordained for us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us to adoption as His sons. He could only adopt us as His sons if we were made holy and righteous because our sins were paid for. So Jesus came to restore that paradise for us. And, he, and what we're going to look at is, well, let's read it. Hebrews 10. Let's look in verse 9, first of all. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Back earlier in the chapter, he said, What they did in the Old Testament could not make us righteous in God's eyes. It could not make us complete or whole. Why? It couldn't because it did not remove the consciousness of sin or guilt, the shame that Adam and Eve brought into mankind, the Old Testament practices could not remove the shame. All right, now verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, talking to God. Oh God, he takes away the first, the first system, that he may establish the second. And by that will, that's the will of God, we have been, not will be, sanctified. The word sanctified doesn't mean you live a sanctified life. What it means is you've been set apart from who you used to be. Set apart from the world. You've been set apart from that fallen nature. You've been set apart and set back into God's kingdom by His will. And notice it says he did not, Jesus did not come to do His will, but He came to do the will of the Father. By that will we've been sanctified through the offering. Look at this of the body of Jesus once and for all. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now we talked last time, and I got into this on Wednesday night, that the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple of David had basically two rooms in it. And the outer room was where the priest could come usually once a week and they would eat the showbread, which is the bread of his presence. And they would, it would represented fellowshipping with God, but there was a veil, a curtain that separated them from the inner room, which is where God's presence dwelt. Now remember, in the garden, God's presence is where they lived all the time. They were evicted from that, and now God is working in man a program and a plan to get man back into that inner presence, into that presence of God. But because, we see, we think that fall was like just a little trip like that. We think man just fell a little bit. You, until you get to heaven, we don't have any idea how far we fell. Well, here's some idea. The entire Old Testament, and if you look in your Bible, how much, the, what percentage of your Bible that is? The entire Old Testament was a series of different ways God dealt with man to simply prepare them 
for God's redemption plan to come. Renewing their mind. The whole system of sacrifices in the Old Testament. The law, the, the, the temple of David and Solomon. All of that was to prepare in their minds to get them to begin to think along different terms so that when God sent his son to redeem them, they would be prepared for him. He spent 2,000 years to do that. And when he came, they still missed him, most of them. That's how far the separation was. It's not like God said, all right, I'm going to come and redeem. Well, let me ask you, how quickly did you respond to it? Look at all the people out there that hear it on TV, hear it from us, and they just say, well, isn't that nice? They don't see it because they don't see where they are. Don't see how far they've fallen and separated from God. Or see what God's power, what God has for them. Otherwise, they'd run. most of them would run to Him. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, Satan has blinded their eyes that they may not see the light of the gospel, the hope that's in Christ Jesus. So that's where we were, and Christ came to, to, and what he did is on the cross, on the cross, literally, the veil of that temple of Solomon that separated those true rooms, when he breathed his last breath, when he physically, his physical body died and he leaved, left, this veil was torn from the top to the bottom. We talked about that. So now there's nothing hindering us from coming in to the presence of God. So this is where we're going. So look in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's go over now and look in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness. Now what did Adam and Eve have? Shame. They weren't bold before God. What did they do? They hid. Now we have boldness to enter the holiest. That's that presence of God. By the blood of Jesus. That means he, paid, he died so that we could do this. To enter by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So when his flesh was torn, when his flesh died, that veil, that he paid the price. That veil that separated us of sin, that separated us from the privilege of going into God's presence. That veil that made up because we were ashamed of where we were, we wouldn't have even dared to enter in. Now that veil's been torn. There's nothing, once you come to Christ, there's nothing keeping you back from entering into this room. Entering into the, but this room is not a room out there we're going to see. It's a room in here now. Now, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But look, this is what I want you to see. There's nothing separating you. Having boldness to enter by the holiest of Jesus, by a new and living way, and verse 21, and having a high priest over the household of God. That's us. Let us draw near with a true, that means sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from a consciousness of evil and our bodies washed with pure water. And that's where we were when we came to Christ. That's what he's paid for. So positionally, in God's mind, there's nothing separating us, not just from the presence of God. And I'm not talking about coming to church and just feeling his presence here. I'm talking about walking in the same paradise that they had in the beginning. Because that's what God came to restore Walking in that paradise of all of his love and blessings, just so aware of him, we're not even conscious of us and what's happening to us. That's what he's paid for. That's where God has opened the door to us to walk in that. And that's where we are in the mind of God. There's nothing holding us back. But I venture to say, I suspect that very few of us are really walking in that. Amen. Most of us are still over here Scared, ashamed, worried about what's going on in the world, what's going on in our lives, whether we're going to have enough. Really, in essence, all the things that Adam and Eve went through once they were separated from God. And yet the door is wide open. There's nothing holding us back from God's side to entering in to this paradise relationship with God. Why don't we enter in? Well, one of the main reasons is we don't know it's there. It's ignorance. 
Proverbs says, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. They just don't know it's there. They don't know we can get her in. So much of the church is over here trying to please God by the things we do and what pleases God. is to enter in. One of the fa- famous verses on faith, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. But most people stop there. Faith pleases God, but the reason faith ple- one of the reasons faith pleases God is what it allows us to do. Because the rest of that verse says, it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. For in order to come to God, you must believe that He is and that he's a reward, coming in full assurance of faith. Faith in what? Faith that my sins have been paid for. Faith that I've been given the righteousness of God. Faith that I can come, even though I've stumbled and messed up, because we don't going to go back and look at it, but Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us there come, for, come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. Why? Because we have a faithful high priest who's gone before us, who makes intercession for us. So the door's open. So much of the church isn't going because they don't know we can go in there. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. But we'll see the main reason. John 8, he says, If my word abides in you, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We're going to look at truth right now. Truth that used to scare me, put me in bondage. So there are many people that don't enter in because they don't know they can. But we're a people that know we can because we sing about it all the time. We're a people that know we can because we've, we've been taught that the presence, the, the, the doorway's been opened. We know we can walk in there. We know we're the righteousness of God because you know, not everybody here, but most of us have learned this. Then why are we still living out here? Why are we still living out here when the doorway back in there has been opened? Because there is a price. And we've listened, we've heard these verses, know these verses well, and because we've not had the foundation that we've been talking about, we've read these verses with fear or with this thought, I can't do this. Verse 23. Then he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. Some translations don't say daily. And follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What's he talking about there? That used to just scare me. It means I've got to die. And I try to make myself die. And this is what we began to talk about last time. It's like, and the fear is, What am I going to have to give up? What am I going to have to let go of? Because if I give it up, I'm not going to have anything. The the, the door's open. God's not saying, if you don't give that stuff up, I don't love you. It's the same position that Adam and Eve were in. They started in the garden... And what got them out of it was their own life. Living their life for their purposes, providing for themselves, protecting themselves, promoting themselves. The three Ps. What you and I find ourselves is in the opposite. We're out here. The price has now been paid so we can get back into paradise. Now I'm not talking about going to heaven. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about here on earth. Being in the living in the presence of God where God lives life. 
John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come. I have come and died. I have come that you might have life. Not loads of blessings, although they may be included. The life he's talking about is this life here. It's the word zoe, which literally means the life at the level where God lives it. That's paradise. I have come that you may have life, and that more abundantly. So the way's been paid, so we can go back in. The price has been paid. And the price that was paid is he had to die to who he was. Remember in the garden? In Matthew's account, three times he said, not my will, which means he didn't want to go. But your will be done. The verses we just read in Hebrews 10. Behold, I've come in the book of this written, is the body you have given to me in order to do your will. So Jesus took his will, his life, what he had a right to, and he laid it down so that you and I would have the right to come back into that place of paradise, that place of fellowship and intimacy and union with him. We saw last week, we ended last week in John 17, where Jesus' high priestly prayer, his talking to God for you, starting in verse 20, he says that they may be one with you as they're one with me that we may be one together with them, that they may know that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus' prayer that when he died, he died to bring us back into union, back into that intimacy, that union, that relationship. In Ephesians 1, I just quoted it for you, that we were, pre, we were pre-planned to adoption as sons. In chapter 8, it ends, gets near the end. It talks about that, and those whom he called, he predestined, that they may be conformed to the image, of his, uh, the image of his son, that the son, Jesus, may be the firstborn among many brethren. So he bought to restore sonship to us. He, di- I mean, he died to restore sonship to us. He died to restore us back to that place of union. We saw last week that hanging on that cross, he felt the separation because he bore for us whatever we got by our sin. So he said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because God separated his presence from him for the first time in all of his existence. He didn't know that paradise, that intimate uh, 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 fellowship, that intimate presence of God was withdrawn from him. Why? Because he had our sin on him. He bore that for you and me. But the reason we're not coming back so freely to enjoy that presence is because we want to take me and my rights and my stuff, we want to take me into the presence of God and be there with Him. So we're going to have God, the creator of everything, and me, the creator of myself. That will not work in his kingdom that's what brought us out of the kingdom to begin with so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get back into that place of intimacy and hold on to the very thing that separates us that's what Jesus is saying here he's not saying look I got this price you gotta pay because he paid the price it's not a price we have to pay it's there's (laughs) I, I did not, I was not, I wish I had now, but I, for some reason, didn't have to take physics in, in, in high school or college. But I have studied enough to know there's some principles. One of them is two things cannot, uh, two pieces of matter cannot occupy the same space at the same time. M- some of you understand what that's like. It's called a fender bender. Yep. <laughs> it's when the front bumper of your car tried to occupy the same space as the rear bumper of the car in front of you. <laughs> You discovered that principle of physics. You can't do that. Well, this is like that. You cannot, what he's saying is, you cannot have what I paid for over here if you're going to hold on to what you think you've created over here. You can't have that without letting go of this. It's kind of like this. You can't sail your boat to the other side of the lake if you don't untie from the dock. (laughs) 
Does that bring it down where we can understand it? If you don't untie from the dock, you're going to stay tied to the dock. And the question is, what's the dock doing for you? We're afraid to let go of control of ourselves. Because that's what it comes down to. We're afraid to let go of that authority over our lives because we have such confidence in ourselves being in charge. Well, ask yourself, take an inventory. What kind of job are you doing? Uh, and especially when you compare it to what he's offered. What kind of job are you doing? Are you in perfect peace? Is there any fear or worry in your life? Any strife? Sickness or disease? Lack? All of those are outside of paradise. But see, we saw before, that was the deception. Satan lied to them, because remember, it starts out by saying, see, there's nothing, especially when you talk about the, the beginnings, where God's laying a foundation for things. It ends, chapter 2 ends by saying they were both naked and were not, they had no consciousness of themselves. Chapter 3 begins by saying the serpent was more cunning. That ought to be a clue to us. He's a deceiver, a con artist. And I've told you over and over again what that means. What he says he's going to do is not what he's going to do. What he says he's after is not what he's after. He's trying to adjust your tie and he's looking for your wallet. He's trying to tell them, look, God kept you from something. He's holding something back. Just listen to me and I'll help you get what he's coming back from you. What did they get? Fear, guilt, shame, lack. That's what they got. And we're blind. That's what they got. Why do we think we're going to do better? So what God, Jesus is saying here is in, it's just like we saw before when we studied him saying, you know, follow me. Remember they were over here, same place. They were over in the, you know, the, they had their fishing business. And he said, come follow me. We saw in order to follow him, they had to leave where they were because he didn't stay there. Well, you can't mix your kingdom and God's kingdom together. You gotta, he's saying you've got to choose one or the other. So the church is struggling. We're struggling because we're trying to have the blessings that are in the paradise holding on to ourselves as our source. Let's look at some things Paul learned about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Well, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, what he's been talking about before this is, 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 is sin that involves the body, immorality and that kind of thing. Verse 19. Basically, doing what we want with our body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Now, stop there. Because what we're talking about is paradise for us is not a place in the Middle East by the Euphrates River. God has come to dwell in you and in me. Just as God came and dwelt in that garden. Just as God came and dealt in that, dwelt in that inner room in the, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness. Just as God came and dwelt in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of Solomon, and actually filled the whole place, God's presence has come to dwell in you by the Holy Spirit. 
that makes you the temple of God. That makes your body the dwelling place, the temple of a holy God. Just as this holy God dwelt in paradise in the Garden of Eden, He has brought His paradise into your body. But we're trying to maintain our own individuality and our own, our own independence from a God who's dwelling inside of us. So we have this attitude, well, it's my body, I can do with it what I want. But I want God to take over when it gets sick. All along I've been abusing it, putting, it in, putting into it what I want. I may mess around here. Putting into it what I want. After all, it's my body. Isn't that what the world's just rampant with today? Women claim they have the right over their own body when there's a life conceived in it. Well, it's my body. I have the right to do with it what I want. Not if you're a Christian. I told you last week, you don't have rights. Now, God may give you some rights, but you don't have any on your own. You have nothing. You have nothing, nothing that God hasn't given you. From rights to your shoelaces. All he requires is that we acknowledge that. Not just with our words, but with our heart attitude. That's all he requires, that we acknowledge that and love him, and he'll pour out everything he's got on you the way he did then. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It says earlier in Matthew 6, don't you know your father knows what you need before you pray? Why does he know what you need? Because he's watching over you. He's watching over you. He knows your needs before you know them. He's ready to meet them. The problem is we're to meet. We go to him last, not first. Because we're independent, especially in New England. Bless God, I'm going to do it my way. Well, it doesn't bless God for you to do it your way. I did it my way. I believe that's the theme song in hell. I really believe that's the theme song in hell. I believe that song was birthed from there. First, first song at the lips of Lucifer. Look where I got him. So here's what Paul says. Uh, let's go over now and look at, uh, let's say I look at a couple of verses that are familiar, but I just want to show them to you. In Acts chapter 20, this Paul developed this attitude. Verse 22, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's saying goodbye to the Ephesian leaders, the leaders of the church at Ephesus, knowing he's not going to see them this side of heaven again. Verse 22, See now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. You want to know how to finish your course with joy? None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. The secret for Paul's success was he had died to who he was. Now that doesn't mean that you lose your individuality. That doesn't mean we're all the same and talk the same and, you know, look the same. Obviously, God's made us all looking differently because he loves variety. So it doesn't mean you lose, your in, you, you lose your personality. What it is is you lose your individuality. You lose your right to be who you are and do what you want to do. And we, see, even, even, even the, the, those terms, we lose, sounds like we come out on the short end of the deal. But it's an exchange you make. Every time you buy something, 
You've decided that what I have, what, I'm, what, that, what that salesman has is worth more to me than what I'm going to give him. So if you're going to buy a necktie for $15, you've decided that I want that necktie more than I want the $15, right? So what you're getting, you value more than what you're giving up. That's what we're looking at here. All we're doing is holding on to the $15. We're looking at what we have. We're looking at what, what, what we've been doing, what our life's like. We're looking at that control we try to hang on so, so desperately, and we've taken our eyes off of what we get, which is paradise. God is your source. God is your, is your resource. God is your answer. God, see, God says, I don't want them to have to deal with the knowledge of good and evil. I'll take care of that for them. I just want them with me. And they chose the knowledge of good and evil over the relationship with God. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Now, we're going to see in a minute that Paul was still in the process of learning how to live that out. But it starts with an act of your will. This is where I want to go. I don't want to be my own God anymore. I don't want to be in control of my life anymore. I don't want to be my... I don't want to... You know, it's a process, but this is where I want to go. This is where I want to go. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. But Paul didn't stop being Paul. Paul didn't lose his personality. He just entered into the paradise. Revelations 12.11 says they overcame him, talking about Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. We forget the last part of that verse. And they loved not their life to the death. Romans chapter 6 says, don't you know that you, if you're in Christ, you were baptized, that means immersed into his death? You died with him. Then why are we trying to hold on to ourselves? Why are we trying to raise ourselves from the dead? Turn with me to, uh, well, before you turn there quickly, we're not, don't go there, but one of the greatest examples of this in the Old Testament is Abraham. We all know, that we know the story. God takes Abraham. His wife was barren. By the time God gets to them to talk to them, they're both too old. They're past childbearing age. And God says to them, I want to create a new people generations out of you. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. All I require of you is you believe me. And we know the story that they had trouble accepting that at first, and, and, and so they tried to help him out when it didn't happen the way on the timetable that they thought it should happen. So they decide they come up with Ishmael because he has relations with her servant, uh, Hagar, and they present Ishmael to God and say, you know, here's the son. And he says, no, 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 it's going to happen by you believing me. Nothing more, nothing less. Well, they finally get in line. They believe God, and Isaac's born. And Isaac grows up to be a young man. This is a gift from God. Not only was God, Isaac was God's idea. God made Abraham believe him for it. Abraham tried something else, and God says, no, it's Isaac. He's made it really clear. And then Isaac becomes a young man, and God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill him. I want you to take him to a mountain. I'm going to tell you this in Genesis 22. I want to offer him up there as a sacrifice to me. What is that all about? But see, Abraham didn't question God. At least we have no record of it. It says he started early the next morning. And he gets to the mountain. And you know the story. They go up the mountain. And he's, he's, he is ready to bring that knife down on, on, on a child that God gave him. And as he's beginning to bring the knife down, an angel speaks to him and says, don't kill that child. And he goes on to say, now I know that you fear me, reverence me. What was God doing there? That gift from God, that gift from God be could become more important to Abraham than the God who gave him the gift. And God was, says, was testing his heart to make sure that Abraham still had God in the right place in his heart, even above the son that God had given him and had a crucial destiny for. At that point, Abraham gave up everything to God. Was he gave his, if he gave his, his beloved son up, he was willing to give up anything. 
the interesting thing is God blessed him beyond what he blessed him before. God poured out his blessings. He had children. He had grandchildren. The, 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 the nation of Israel comes out of that act of obedience and love. And he got more possessions. He became wealthy than he was before. But that, none of that stuff had him. Why? Because God had him. He was, he was walking in the abundance of this paradise because he let go of the thing that meant the most to him. What's your Isaac? It can be relationships, it can be money, it can be power. It, I don't know what it is, but what is your Isaac? Whatever it is, that's what God will come after. Because he wants you. Your Isaac, your Isaac will keep you from enjoying, not going to heaven, I'm not talking about that, from enjoying this fellowship with him, the fullness of that paradise. And it will keep him from enjoying the fullness of you. Now go to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll close with this. Say, what is it that has to die? Whatever Satan introduced in the garden, and whatever Satan's introducing to you, it's anything God didn't give us, and that we don't recognize as coming from him. Anything that comes from my own will apart from Him. And I've kind of broken it down to this. It's my self-identity. It's my self-protection. It's my self-determination. It's my self-provision. I'll give these to you again. And it's my self-love, which is called self-pity. Self-identity. Well, I've got to find out who I am, and you need to get saved. That'll tell you who you are. Self-protection. Self-determination, self-provision, self-love, which is self-pity. Philippians 3, verse 4. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more. This is Paul. This is his process. And then he goes through his credentials, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisees, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I counted as lost. He's just listed the things that he did himself to make himself important. He just listed his own resume, which was his self-identity. This is what he was before he came to Christ. This is what he made himself to be. This is how he projected himself to other people to be. How he wanted to be seen by others. And notice what he discovered, what he needed to do. But these things that were, were gained to me, so these were gained, I counted as loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things for loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Some translations say the surpassing excellence. So Paul, here's the same exchange. Paul looks at all that he had. Prestige, importance. He was well respected. He was one of the leading Pharisees, looked up to, respected, and he'd earned it. And now he's faced with this choice. That's who he was over here that he built his life around and now that he's saved, he sees that the door has been opened to come in to know Christ, to know God this way. And he's sitting, standing over here, looking at all that he built, all that he created, all he had control over, and looking at what was offered to him. And he said, for the surpassing value of that, I let go of this. That I may have this. Because you can't enjoy this fully until you've let go of this. And what most of us are trying to do is... So we come to church and we feel God's presence and we're leaning this way and we go back out in the world and those things look at us and we kind of lean, we're now pulling this way and we're going back and forth. He said, I just made a decision. I count all things lost for the excellence or the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And it's not, not talking about getting saved. And be found in him not having fig leaves that I have sown myself. 
That's really what that's talking about. Not having my own righteousness. Not covering myself up by my efforts, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God by faith, entering with boldness by the full assurance of faith, that I may know Him, this is the paradise, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, how? Being conformed to His death. What did He do? He let go of His will, what He wanted, in order to do the Father's will. He let go of the control of His body in order for He put His body into the hands of those Roman soldiers to carry out the Father's will. He put His mind in control of His Father. You know, all these things. That's the death that He's died that we are to be conformed to. We, the right to come into the presence of God came through His death, His letting go of what He has, our enjoying it requires the same thing that we have to do. But we have our eyes on what we're going to give up, what we're going to lose, and we don't trust God of what He's going to give us. That's why it's done by faith. All right. Verse 11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now look at verse 12. This is Paul writing that we've just read about. Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected or completed, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as having apprehended it or acquired it, but one thing I do, forgetting that which lies behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule, lest we be of the same mind. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. What is all this all about? It really comes down to seeing a picture. Because we look, we read our Bible, we look at what God says to do or not do, we look at the principles, the teachings, we, all, we look at them through this image, this picture we have of, the, of, of, the, of reality, which is that, that, that here's God, I, I want his blessings, I want his provision, I need to have help. And I'm over here, and I have my own personality, my own identity, and I gave myself to Christ, which means I'm now restored to relationship with Him, but I'm here, and I need Him to come help me. I need Him to do this for me. And we're frustrated because we ask God, we say, God, this is what Your Word says, and we don't see things happening. Oh, God, see, He'll get to us what He can. He'll get to us what He can. But He's limited because we got our, we're trying to control everything instead of just yielding ourselves to Him. And it really comes down to this simple understanding. And then, this is what it's all about. All of this over here is an illusion. It's a deception. The same deception that was brought in Genesis 3 into the garden to separate them from the God. The deception is that I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I have the right to ability to make choices about what I'm going to do. And you do, because God gave... You, <laughs> you have that right because God gave it to you. <laughs> the only reason you have the free will, because He made you. He installed a free will in you when He made you. If He decided not to install a free will in you, you'd be just like you know, the animals that are out there. Because the only thing God ever made that, that disobeys Him is man. Because we're the only creation that has our own right to make our own will. But He gave it to us. So it starts by understanding, I'm His creation. And there's a beautiful passage in, in Revelation 4 which says, the angels around the throne and the elders fall down and they worship Him saying, Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. For we were created for your pleasure. That's why you exist. That's why I exist. It's to give pleasure 
to him. And when that begins to become the focus of our lives and realize I don't belong to myself, I don't own anything. I am a steward, been entrusted with things. What began to turn our marriage around is when I began to realize God has entrusted his daughter to me to take care of, to love, to nurture. God has entrusted me to her. He's entrusted us to one another. He's entrusted you to me for a role. He's entrusted us to each other. He's, but he's the one that initiated this. He's entrusted things to us. We don't own anything. And when we think we own something, we pull that away from him. And we're trying to... It's a deception. It's an illusion. And the, 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 the deliverance, the freedom, the answer that many of us need is waking up and realizing I'm deceived. Changing the way I look at myself, what I have, what I can do. And I'm talking about talents, not just money, talents, ability, time. And recognizing it all belongs on to him. He's entrusted it to me. What do you want me to do with it? It will literally change your relationship with God and it will open the door for not only you to be positionally in paradise, but begin to walk in that paradise. And I guarantee you this. If you begin to do things his way, he's got better ways of doing things than you ever imagined. He can do more for you in the split of an eye than you can do in your entire life. His whole heart desires to bless you. I didn't have the time this morning to go through Romans chapter 8, the end of it, but verse 32 says, He who spared not his own son, how will he not also freely give you all things? He's the same God that was in the garden, the same God that wants to give you delight and blessing, but he can't do it. He's, they're there. They're there for you, but when we're over here holding on to ourselves, we can't enjoy what he's opened the door to provide for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you right now for your graciousness and your goodness. Pray, Lord, for the word of God that we've heard, that your spirit has planted and deposited in each one of our hearts. It may be something just a little different in each one of us, but whatever it is, it's a seed that's been sown. We pray now, Father, I pray for the Holy Spirit to begin to water that seed in us, begin to speak to us and show us in our own lives so that we can see where we've been. Father, deliver us from the deception that we've lived in so much of our lives, that we're our own person and we have our own rights, and help us to recognize who you are and who you've made us to be and what you've opened your doors to call us into. For the grace to do that, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.